We're back. Of course, we are every week, unless I get stricken by some lurgy. This week, however, I'm kind of tired because I've just acquired, as you all heard recently, a new puppy. His name is Truman. I don't know how I came up with the word name Truman. I was thinking about it. I was like, he's this really scrappy little dog. He's a complete mutt. There's no clue what kind of dog he is. He looks like a bit like a corgi, a bit like a German shepherd, a bit like a chihuahua in the face, a bit like a pit in the face. Who knows what wonderful genetic influences this little critter has in his past. But he was found wandering around in West Virginia astray about to fall into the uh, a town swimming pool, I was told. I mean, these stories you get from the adopters and rescuers. Um, but anyway, he was funneled to me <laughs> over the weekend. And yeah, it was kind of love at first sight. We are kind of mad about each other. And he's hilarious and fun, sweet, very well behaved. I mean, we've still got some toilet training and we've got some... He's never dealt with a leash before, but we're, we're, we're going bit by bit. And I am, well, on the theme of today's podcast, I'm quite happy. <laughs> Happiness can be a function of love and between humans and animals, as C.S. Lewis once pointed out. And it's wonderful, as I'm sure many of you understand. Those who have dogs and who have really good relationships with them, they are, they're better than us. And I'm learning from him how to be a better person. So let's go straight to today because the guest today is one of my oldest friends. We go back to Harvard together. That's, I, it's too many years to even talk about at this point. It's about 40 years, I think, right? Anyway, Jeffrey Rosen is the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, where he hosts We the People, a weekly podcast of constitutional debate. He's also a professor of law at the George Washington University Law School and a contributing editor at The Atlantic. He's written many books, but his new one is a really, really interesting one. It's called The Pursuit of Happiness, How Classical Writers on Virtue Inspired the Lives of the Founders and Defined America. Jeffrey, thanks for coming on the Dishcast. It's lovely to see you. I'm so excited to be here. So tell me, because we do this with every guest, even though I know a certain amount of your life. Tell me where you grew up, who your mom and dad did, and how you ended up coming to Harvard. Let's get that far. I grew up in New York City. My dad was a hypnotherapist. He was one of the great hypnotherapists of the 20th century, and he was a student of uh, a hypnotherapist called Milton Erickson. And my mom was a social worker and a family counselor. And I went to the Dalton School, this wonderful beacon of liberalism at that time, and did theater and student government, and uh, just had the most marvelous teachers of English and history, and read all these wonderful books. And that's how I ended up at Harvard, which was one of the great fortuities of my life because it led to my meeting you, and that led to the rest of my journalism career, which is all thanks to you. Well, you are you're overstressing that. You were a huge star at Harvard academically. We were all made fun of you all the time because you were incredibly organized. <laughs> and every lecture, he would take immense notes, and then he would actually... I know I, I shouldn't bring this up. It's kind of embarrassing. But, but, but uh, then you go home and type them up, and wow. you have... 
all these amazing courses. I remember just thinking, my God, if only I had that discipline that he had. And, and I don't think you ever got an A minus, right? You just aced everything. I, I can't believe that you remember that. And you, you were, of course I do. you were and are this incredibly glamorous character. And it's important for listeners to know how incredibly intimidating you were in those days. And Catholic, intellectual, gay, Tory. But for me, what was so powerful about your example was that you were an, ex you were an example of someone who was reconciling faith with the intellectual life. And I yearned for that connection, in addition to just wanting to be like you and emulating you and, and to be a journalist. You, you inspired me to do that when you, you started writing. I, I craved an answer to the question that you seem to have reconciled at that point, which is how is it possible to lead a purpose-driven life? And to reconcile that, in my case, with reason, not with revelation, because I was studying Puritan theology as an English and government major with Sack Van Berkovich and Walter Jackson Bate and Judith Schwar, all these marvelous teachers, but I was completely unconvinced by the rigors of, of Puritan theology and predestination and all of its hair splitting about justification by faith. And I, mm. I wanted an answer to the question of how you could live a purpose-driven life by, by reason rather than revelation. And it was the 80s, and it was greed is good, and materialism and hedonism, and I was enjoying those things as much as you were, but you felt unsatisfied by that as an ultimate answer. And, and, and I, I remember be, being in the library in, in Lamont and both feeling that my mission in life was to reconcile English and government, politics and literature, and also that I, I was supposed to, re, to write a book called Good and Evil, an Update. That was what was given to me, but I had no idea what the answer was, and I, I just wasn't able to begin to answer it. And what I didn't realize, because the answer was just hiding in plain sight, was that uh, that was exactly the question that the classical moral philosophers had set out to answer. And because that literature had just fallen out of the curriculum by the time we were in college, I studied English and political philosophy and, and history and, and law and all, all of these marvelous topics with the greatest teachers who, to whom I'm so grateful, but just totally missed that literature. So that's what made this book such a, mm. a, a an answer to the questions that I'd, I'd been struggling with in college that, that, that you had raised for me and you, you offered one answer. And it took me nearly 40 years to come up with my own. Well, you, you thought I had the answer. I, of course, was also searching myself. And, and, I've, and I, 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 reason, too, is very important to me. And I think what attracted me and what kept me in Catholicism, as opposed to Puritan theology and Protestantism, was its intellectual aspirations, you know, it's, it's, it's Thomist aspiration to understand nature and the universe and the cosmos. It's, it's placing of logos, reason also at the center of our lives. It's also unlike Puritan theology, it's, it's, it's focused on what you do every day, the acts of charity, of generosity, of love, of those things that you are really judged by. In other words, it's kind of the reverse of the predestination or that element of, of, of Protestant theology. It is much more built upon living your life every day and being a good person in certain ways and evolving that way. And the way you behave is what you will become. So in some ways, I think Catholicism did solve some of these problems for me. But you're right. It's kind of amazing that kids go to college and they're really asking, what is the point of my life? How should I live my life? And 
they're presented with not very much actual material to help them wrestle with this. It's extraordinary. And you can't, the, the idea of um, reasoning your way to a belief in God for me was not the path. You need to read, I needed to read all of the wisdom literature, the classical sources, the Bhagavad Gita and the Dhammapada, the Old and New Testament, and their enlightenment glosses with the great moral philosophy of the enlightenment to see that all were basically coming back to the same idea. And the, the, the idea is that the central importance of self-mastery, self-control, self-improvement, focusing on the only thing that you can control, which are your own thoughts and emotions, so that you can be your best self and connect to the divine harmonies of the universe. And it was so empowering for me to learn that for the, for the Greeks, we really have a, a divine duty to live according to reason, which is the divine, which is God, which is the unity and harmony of the universe. And to do that, we have to first tend to the constitution of our own soul and to find some balance within so that we can then connect to the eternal balance outside of us. And we are actually kind of taught in some subtle way that this happiness in our lives will be will be won through external things. I will get money. I will get power. I will get 3,000 followers on Instagram. I will have a lovely house. I will have, you know, the, the, the hottest girlfriend, the, the sexiest boyfriend, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, those things come, but they also go. And the inability to control them, which is sort of what one learns as one grows up, forces one, I think, at some point in one's life to realize, you know, I can't control any of this. Right, it can't. I mean, I think this this hit me. I mean, obviously, very young. I and mean, I, I, my whole life was turned upside down by an illness, and I just realized, well, I'm not in control of my life. What can I do? I can think straight. I can love my neighbor, and I can I can be silent in the face of God. But those are the things I can actually control. So there's something kind of liberating about letting go of shit you can't actually really have much influence on, and focusing on the stuff that you can. It's incredibly liberating and it's incredibly empowering. And of all the wisdom literature, the Bhagavad Gita summed it up most concisely for me. And it's embodied in the phrase Gandhi loved to quote, which is renounce and enjoy. And once you renounce attachment to external events, to externals of any kind, and focus on perfecting the only thing you can, which is your own thoughts and emotions, your own soul, you can enjoy eternal happiness and it is in giving that you receive so so true to quote someone else <laughs> i mean there is there is that sense of to be even indifferent to the fate of your own life and death which is of course socrates and jesus are the two models there of of, of, of amazing self-mastery the ability to put yourself through unbelievable suffering because you know that you need to do it or your ability to risk well, Socrates risked by asking question upon question upon question, was stumbling upon answers or possible questions that violate the very basis of the state that he lived in and was executed for it. So, the, And Socrates is kind of an amazing figure for a lot of these 
these founding fathers of America. He 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 sits there. It's still he's still this exemplum of 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 composure. Exemplum is exactly right. And Benjamin Franklin in his virtue project, which sparked my COVID reading project and sparked this book, he has thirteen virtues. He set out when he was young to achieve moral perfection, and he made a list of uh, virtues that he thought he should try to emulate: temperance, prudence industry and order. And at the last minute, a Quaker friend told him to add the virtue that he had trouble achieving, and that was humility. So he adds humility, and he had axioms for each virtue. And for humility, he chose imitate Jesus and Socrates. And imitation and emulation are such a central part of the teaching of the classical authorities, which is really practicing habits of daily self-mastery, and the way to practice them is to find exemplars of them. And the, and the greatest of exemplars, in fact, the figure who originated the distinction between reason and passion for the Greeks was, of all people, Pythagoras. And it was, who knew that in addition to inventing the triangle and the harmonic system, he also came up with the distinction between reason and passion, which Plato then channeled into reason, passion, and desire, and said that we have an obligation to use our powers of reason located in the head to moderate and temper our passion or emotion in the heart and desire in the stomach so we can achieve equanimity and harmony. And I have to note that Pythagoras lived on the Isle of Croton, and he inspired his disciples to first be good and then like a god. And they ate moderately and drank moderately. And he was a rigorous vegetarian, except he had an injunction on beans. And he told his disciples they should rather die than eat beans. And <laughs> one, rather than even tread in a bean field, they, they were fleeing and, and pursued by the enemy. And then he came up to and one of the disciples and said, just tell us one secret and I'll let you go. I'll spare your life. Why don't you eat beans? And she said, I'd rather die than tell you and spit out her tongue and, and perished on the bean field. Why didn't he eat beans? Some people said it's because they resembled fetuses and the soul of the dead was in them. But I was at a book talk the other day and a guy stood up and he said, I am from the Isle of Croton. And in fact, Socrates <laughs> enjoined beans because there was a rare genetic deficiency on the Isle of Croton. And if you eat beans, you're finished. So in fact, he was a great uh, doctor as well as a uh, are you, are you sure it wasn't just some terrible experience with flatulence over the years? I'm, I'm, I'm in honor of, I think it's the 50th anniversary of Blazing Saddles, an immortal bean eating scene around the campfire. It is fascinating to think of these people. Like Pythagoras is this name to us, is abstraction, but he's a human being and he's trying to figure out how can I be happy? And in that, he comes across the very basic issues of like, I desire things that I can't get or that disappoint me or that I'm constantly frustrated by. I, I get angry that leads to bad circumstances or consequences. I do things I'm not really happy about. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm basically being controlled by these passions. How do I find a way to synthesize them with my brain? That doesn't mean actually get rid of the human passions. It doesn't mean getting rid of human emotion. It means channeling them in the right way, which is another, you know, Greek idea that there is some sort of moderate middleness of, of these kind of passions that you can't, I mean, my, my feeling is the Puritans want to banish the passions, which is a foolish, foolish, <laughs> foolish way of going around it because that lacking humility, because we, we're, we're all bound by them. 
But but the Greeks were about, you know, finding a way. There's an analogy they use, of course, which is the chariot driver, right? Yes, exactly. And and you're so right that it's it's about moderation, not not banishing the passions, but moderating our unreasonable or turbulent passions and emotions so that we can achieve equanimity and balance. And they were so psychologically innovative about enumerating the unreasonable passions, in particular, anger, jealousy, and fear, ambition, and avarice, and noting the uh, reasonable passions and emotions like the virtues, uh, namely the four classical virtues, prudence, temperance, courage, and justice. Plato's metaphor of the charioteer is so powerful. And the goal of the charioteer is to align the passionate and the noble horses so that they both pull in the same direction. And then Aristotle sums it up in the Nicomachean Ethics. And the famous definition of happiness as eudaimonia or good spirit is an activity of the soul in conformity with excellence or virtue. And excellence mm-hmm. and virtue are, are not self-defining, so they're confusing today. But Adam Smith defines uh, virtue as temperance of the soul, a moderation of the emotion. So temperance itself is virtue, which is excellence, which is happiness. And then in, in the ethics, Aristotle has the famous enumeration of the virtues, both with the extreme and the deficiency, and then in each case, the moderate or middle way. And that's the path we're supposed to follow. Yeah, let's let's tease that out a little bit because so our listeners can be reminded of stuff they might have learned a long time ago. Let's give an example of an Aristotelian balance of a passion, the, the, the excessive of one, the, the too much or too little, and you need the middle one. You know, I'm going to have to go back to the ethics because they're not intuitive. There's a chart at the end of them, mm-hmm. and it's going to take me a sec to find it on online. So here, here we go. So at the Nicomachean Ethics, the virtue is courage, the deficiency vice is recklessness, and the extreme or excessive vice is cowardice. Right. So and let's yeah. take one more. The, the virtue is moderation, the deficiency is licentiousness, and the extreme is insensibility. I have to say, I don't find these terms are not, not intuitive, which is why. Pythagoras is kind of glossing is is easier to use. One one more liberality is the virtue. Prodigality is the deficiency, and stinginess is the virtue. yeah. Well, that's easy to understand. Is that is that is being generous is great, but don't give everything away, and and for God's sake, and also and give it to people who deserve it, and don't don't be a fucking stingy person and never give anything away. And and you realize, well, yeah, of course that's the way. And then you but we have this idea this. Christian idea in some ways of perfect and imperfect, but we don't have this sense of the Aristotelian middle. Um, Franklin, let's talk about his his attempt to reach temperance, um, which was this, you know, he's, he, he's main, his main concern, he thought, was vanity, right? That was his main worry about himself. He was concerned about vanity, which the Quaker friend reminded him of. He certainly struggled with chastity, which he he had a kid out of wedlock, and, and he who then became a Tory, and, and they were estranged. 
<laughs> so just like that. So, <laughs> just, think, just thinking of my Labour Party friends who were like, he had a child of Ludlock and then even worse, he became a Tory. <laughs> you know, obviously, you mean a Tory in the classic American sense, but yeah, no, that's hilarious. During, yeah, during the was, revolution, it was an especially big deal. And, and he's trying to make a name for himself in Philadelphia and to get a reputation. He's a poor printer and... He, he thinks that achieving moral perfection will make him healthy, wealthy, and wise, an axiom that he gets from the uh, moral philosophy that he's reprinting for uh, his newspaper and, and which he always makes pithier. And, and his attempt to practice the virtue, so he makes this chart and decides every night he'll focus on a different virtue and, and put an X mark next to the virtue where he's fallen short. And he tried this for a while. Every night, this is the thing. You, you, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you think about this to yourself. Like, okay, I'm going to line up all the virtues, and I'm every day I'm going to go at the end of the day, and see how I did. Uh so, so our friend Frank Form and I tried this a couple of years ago. We were at Addis Israel, the synagogue in in Cleveland Park, and the rabbi said that there was a Hebrew system of character improvement called Musar. And he gave us the book, which was called An Accounting of the Soul. And there were basically the 13 virtues in Hebrew. And I later found out that this Hasidic rabbi in 1808 got them from Franklin, a, a Polish count, <laughs> gave him a copy of Franklin. He just translated them into Hebrew and offered them to Hebrew readers. So we practiced the Franklin system in Hebrew, not knowing it was the Franklin system. And we tried it for a couple of weeks and every night would put X marks next to the virtue we fell short. And it's incredibly depressing. I mean, it's basically, it's all X marks every night. And, you know. and I was going through a tough time then and, you know, practicing prudence and temperance and not losing your temper were not succeeding. So, and, and then you talk about it and try to be better. And basically, like Franklin, we, we just gave it up after a few weeks. But it, but it, but it was the simple mindfulness. He stopped, he stopped doing it. it. We, we did because it. No, he did. Oh, Franklin. Frank, Franklin did just. How long did he last? I think he just, you know, a couple months as well. And and he said that he gave it up because he found it too arduous. But he felt that he was a better person for having tried. And we felt just the same thing. I mean, just just being attentive to the fact. I mean, it's not at all intuitive that temperance and prudence are something that you're supposed to aim to achieve every day, unless unless you have it in mind that losing your temper and not uh, acting out and not, you know, living your bliss and, and you do you or the way, way that you're supposed to get through the day, then you, you don't focus on checking yourself. So it's, it's simply making yourself aware and recognizing, and this is the most important thing, that it's, it's not only a daily task, it's an hourly task. It really almost, you know, every minute you have to maintain alignment and make sure that you're using your time well and productively and not getting distracted by unproductive emotions so, so that you can be totally tuned in and focused as we are right now in this conversation and connect only connect so so that's why the project was useful but it did take that's the the word that comes to mind when you say all that the contemporary word that comes to mind is mindfulness which is which is a similar be aware at all times of of, of what you're doing where you are uh but it has something more than mindfulness, I think, because it ha actually has a sort of moral system that you can improve. So what I find difficult is how do we get better? Like, like what is, is it just simply a matter of effort? You see, in Christ Christianity, we both have, you got to do it. 
I mean, and, and you do it whether you feel good or not. At least that's the Catholic variety of it. And in the doing of it, you will find it easier over time to do it again and again and again. So it's a matter of, of practice. But there's also, obviously, in Christianity, the sense of God helping you. Of your, you need some kind of higher power to bring, you, bring up your best. And when you look at something like, let's say, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, they're both, they're all trying to establish, well, they'd be the excessive, probably Aristotle wouldn't, Aristotle would like moderate drinking. But let's say they, they, they're, they're the kind of people that can't do moderate drinking. But they are trying to exercise temperance. They are trying to control their, and they find it essential to be able to somehow give it up to a higher power. Why, how did the Greeks not do that? Or did they do that? Well, they did believe there's a higher power, which is divine reason, mm. which is the divine, which is God. And they, some, some, like Cicero, thought that we have a hardwired moral sense that can help us too. And Socrates talked about his inner oracle. So some thought that we're endowed by our creator with a, 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 a faculty or power that, that helps us align with the divine. But the mm -hmm. crucial thing is that it's the pursuit that is the way and the path. And simply by engaging in the work of industry, of not getting distracted and using our powers to read deeply and to think and to learn and to grow, that itself is the connection with the divine, to listen to music, to create, to compose, to, to connect those moments of alignments, every minute that we achieve that is to connect to the divine. So th that's why for me, this whole reading project was so fulfilling because it was actually following the footnotes and, and moving from one thinker to another and engaging in this, you know, just really unexpected and unusual project of deep reading during COVID. I, I, I realized that that industrious act itself was the path. And you notice too, and I, I looking at the the sort of the days, just the days of some of these people, they they would allocate two hours a day. They would have this scheduled reading. And and I'm not and, and we don't mean social media, we mean actually reading the ancient texts. Now one of the more interesting texts that they really did like, which most I think people today don't really Cicero is is sort of a very important figure now, and Cicero is barely taught anymore anywhere. I mean, I went to an, a good old grammar school where I was taught Latin, and I learned Cicero, and I learned Ciceronian rhetoric. I learned, I learned how you construct a Ciceronian sentence. So I was aware of Cicero as a writer because he's a brilliant, beautiful writer, but as a philosopher and as an influence on that generation of men, it's pretty central, right? Well, it was Cicero that started this entire project. And I'll, I'll tell, tell us more. Uh, so it was uh, during COVID, I, I was rereading the Franklin autobiography. I don't know how I came across the 13 virtues, which I knew from my experience with Frank for practicing them in Hebrew. But what struck me is that Franklin chose as an epigraph for his project a phrase from Cicero, without virtue, happiness cannot be. And it was a book I'd never heard of called The Tusculan Disputations. A few weeks later, I was at UVA at the Boar's Head Inn, and on the wall was a list of 12 virtues that Thomas Jefferson had drafted for his daughters. And 
I hadn't seen them before. They were almost identical to Franklin's industry, temperance, and so forth. But what really struck me is that Jefferson also, whenever he was asked for the meaning of happiness when he was old, would send a passage from Cicero's Tusculan Disputations. And it was a passage on grief and really striking that his definition of happiness was from Cicero on grief. And it essentially said, the man who is... Do you have it? Do you have it? Can you, could, yeah. could we find the passage and read it? So when when Jefferson was old, people would write to him and ask, what's the meaning of happiness? And he would send a quotation from Cicero's Tusculan Disputations. Therefore, the man, whoever he is, whose soul is tranquilized by restraint and consistency, and who is at peace with himself, so that he neither pines away in distress, nor is broken down by fear, nor consumed with a thirst of longing in pursuit of some ambition, nor maudlin in the exuberance of meaningless eagerness, he is the wise man of whom we are in quest. He is the happy man. Wow. And that's interesting. He is the wise man. He is the happy man. And it's as if you, all of you people who are seeking happiness through pleasure or through the instant satisfaction of your needs, which is a very human thing to do, you're just getting it wrong. It's, it's just a, it's a revelation is the only word I can uh, use. And, and then uh, I was just opened up to the ancient meaning of happiness just by a resolution that I had to read Cicero, of course, because it was so important to Jefferson and Franklin, but what else to read? And then I came across a reading list that Jefferson would send to sons of his friends who were going to law school or anyone who'd ask him, you know, how to be an educated person. And as you said, it was Stakhanovite in its prescribing what should be read at what hours of the day. You're supposed to wake up before sunrise and read philosophy and government early in the morning and then history in the afternoon before lunch. And by the time you get to the evening, you're allowed some literature. But I was drawn to the section that Jefferson called alternatively ethics or natural religion. And there were 10 books in that section. And at the top of the list was Cicero's Tusculan Disputations. And it also included Cicero's On Duties. And then a classical moral philosophy, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, Xenophon's memoir of Socrates, and then some Enlightenment thinkers. Locke, not the two treatises on government, but the conduct of the understanding of the search of truth, Bolingbroke's philosophical works, Hume's essays, and Lord Keynes's natural religion. So I just resolved during COVID to read the books because I'm supposed to be. Well, just, let's just stop for a second. <laughs> What, it, what, what would it be to live in a world where a president or a leading statesman had read all of those books, thought about them deeply, urged others to read and think about them in order to acquire a kind of temperament of ultimate equanimity and therefore peace and serenity and happiness? I mean, it just feels when I read this book and I thought of these men, I mean, they were great men of any all ages, I mean, many ages, but nonetheless... What an extraordinary moment that these people were constructing a whole new society based upon the best that they could think of in terms of classical and, and early modern thought. Andrew, the most inspiring thing about them is that they were lifelong learners and they read so deeply and so widely and so broadly until the end of their days. And the vision of yeah. Jefferson and Adams as old men. 
they fought, they were together in the revolution, they, they divide in the most bloody partisan division in all of American history, then they reconcile. And what did they want to talk about? The latest books they've read. And, and Jefferson is so open in saying that he's become an Epicurean in old age, and that Adams is so excited when he learns that Pythagoras is supposed to have traveled to the East and read the Hindu Vedas. And then he says, "Did Joseph, the one thing he wants to know, did Joseph Priestley complete his translation of the Bhagavad Gita before he died? And Jefferson said, good news, he, he lived, I've got the edition, I can send it to you. And, and Jefferson's convinced that this will um, show the connection between the East and Western wisdom traditions. And Adams reduces them all to this, to the hymn of Cleanth, which he says has become the touchstone of his understanding of the divine, which is love God and all his creatures, rejoice in all things. But just the sheer, they're lifelong learners. In addition to being so deeply intellectual, they just want to learn and grow. And you, I read that and it inspired me to read more than I've ever read in any sustained way and and one and and use and to set aside time every day the way they did i was really inspired by the fact that as old men jefferson is setting aside still until the end four hours in the morning for his extraordinary correspondence and for deep reading and so was adams it is so empowering and we are so far from that ideal but maybe and of course that's cicero's cicero's treatise on old age also says that's what you need to do you need to go full full pelt up until the very end you're always you're still learning and there's there's no sense of completion there's no sense that he's that jefferson or adams are going to go on a carnival cruise you know or that or that or that we're just gonna we're gonna chill and sit on the sit on our deck chairs looking at the sea for the rest of our lives they they keep thinking it's it's so empowering it's an argument for the radical act of self-assertion of deep reading and we did a great uh, conversation about this at the Constitution Center the other night, and I just challenged everyone to be lifelong learners and, and just to empower ourselves by continuing to read. And, and it was so exciting that all these older um, members and friends came up after and said, I, you know, I want to be a lifelong learner. This, I'm, I'm reading in my uh, retirement. I'm, it's so exciting to learn. It, and suddenly you realize that the ancient wisdom is right, that we do have the capacity within ourselves to engage in learning and, and living according to reason, which is happiness. And but that requires a level of concentration and composure that the modern world conspires against. I mean, you, you can think of people in the late 18th century, and there wasn't, there wasn't much to distract them. It was quiet. There was there wasn't much street lights. They lived in in pretty rough conditions compared to today. Yeah, there was gossip. There was letters. There was politics. There was all that stuff that usually goes along, but nothing like the simply sort of dazzling array of distraction that we currently have in front of us. The the the, the, the takeaway, if there can be one, to to basically what's the experience of reading all the great self help books of the ages. The takeaway for me is just to set aside dedicated focus time every morning for deep reading rather than browsing. And just the simple act of not, I, I don't, after having engaged in this practice, I don't allow myself to browse in the morning, although of course I'm tempted to every day. And uh, my, the rule is I've got to read an actual book and, and you can just change your life. And, and now, you know, every morning you just a little bit of deep reading and it just, it blows my mind. That, I that all of the books of the world 
are online. I, I remember as a kid, I went with my mom to the Library of Congress, the Thomas Jefferson Building, I still think is the most inspiring in DC. I was so filled with wonder at the thought that all the books in the world were in that building. And that, but now they're on my iPhone. And I, the fact that I was able to read not only free copies of all the greatest literature of all time, but also the actual books that the founders read with their own marginalia, if I wanted to do that, and read and write the whole thing from my couch, it's just the most extraordinary opportunity in human history. And you think of Adams and Jefferson eagerly yearning for particular copies of books or Abraham Lincoln having to pay in corn for a book that he ruined because he left it out in the rain. And the fact that it's just waiting there, shimmering for us, if we can only find the self-discipline to read it, is, 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 is I think, inspiring in some ways because it's not that hard to develop the habit. I'm not going to browse. I'm going to read instead. And once you do that, a whole world opens up to you. Well, people people understand the principle of taking half an hour a day to meditate. And this is not instead of meditation. You can meditate as well as this. But it is a form of attention. It's a form of calm. It's a form of putting yourself together in front of difficult things and taking time with yourself to figure them out a little bit. Now, you're not going to figure them out entirely. Some thoughts will stick with you that day. Which of these authors that you read for the first time or read seriously for the first time, these ancient authors, which ones sort of really stuck, stuck out to you? Which ones really shocked you or surprised you? Was there any that you, 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 you immediately became very fond of? Aurelius is the most accessible, as many people have found. And if you want to start with applied stoicism, reading the meditations is great. I had a good modern translation. Seneca has these wonderful essays on time, which are very aphoristic. And, and the fact that they're essays rather than uh, deep moral philosophy makes them more accessible. C Cicero is kind of, relatively heavy going, not, not, not impossible, but, but not, you know, a laugh a minute. <laughs> the, the, for, for me, the, 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 the philosophy is less important for the particular insights than for the vibe, really. The, and, and the vibe is the same as the Gita and the Dhammapada, but you basically get the, the, over, the shining, illuminating light of reason that sort of shines through that and the example of what it feels like to live a life according to reason. It's expressed in different ways. And, and for me, the, the ancient uh, philosophy was just the beginning and, and it led to the, the modern philosophy. What, what do we, what do we, can we unpack this word reason? Because we sort of think we know what it means, but I'm curious because one of the things I also thought about when I was reading this and reading know the Stoics as well, is that they're a little Taoist too. I don't know whether you know much of, of Taoism, but this, this sense that there is some deep, I mean, you, you, it could be the, the divine that, that, that is revealed through logos, through reason, and that helps us control our, our elements, our, our, our emotions. Taoism or? Yes, but Taoism, Taoism suggests also something deep down something very calming and profound that the wise man sees, notices the, the, the water or the, the way in which the natural world sort of commands a certain kind of peace and equanimity. That's also there too. It's as if it's not necessarily 
reason doesn't take you up, up, it also takes you down into a more grounded sense of self. It's the light within. It's that shimmering inner light, which is the true self, separate from the ego-based self and all of its perturbations and vanities. And that's why the Tao says we are what we think, life shaped by the mind. And, and, and that's why the Gita talks about focusing on the light within. And in fact, all of the traditions, including Christianity and Judaism, have a, have a version that focuses on the inner divinity. But what's so important about the classics is to recognize that the light within is, is a spark of the universal light that glows within all things and that suffuses and created the universe which is God, which is reason. And, and reason is the eternal light. In the beginning was Logos. And the Logos was God and the Logos was with God. That's, I mean, that's the very beginning of the Gospel of, of John. So you, you see, this, see this everywhere. Let's, I want to just let's talk about one of the founders who, who struggled with his own life. I mean, let's talk about John Adams, who's a, an extraordinarily emotional person, a tempestuous person, uh, a difficult person in so many ways. And, and he's, he, he tried to do this. He tried to teach himself. And for what he regarded as his key virtue to attain would be humility, right? So how did Adams, how did Adams do this in his life? By reading Cicero, of course, he he's he's one of the most famously self-regarding men of his age, and he's called his rotundity, and he proposes that the president be called his elective majesty, and he loses <laughs> his temper and stamps his wig on the floor and complains that he's not given enough credit for having written the Declaration of Independence or drafted the Constitution or created the Revolution. But he's always, he's so endearingly human because he's self-aware and he recognizes that he's self-regarding. And starting from when he was at Harvard reading Cicero, he keeps a diary of his own efforts to overcome his vanities. And he reads Cicero to console himself when his parents have a fight. And he urges his son, John Quincy, to read Cicero so that it becomes Quincy's Touchstone as well, and and Quincy Adams reads Cicero in the White House in, in in Latin, and and this is the core of his courtship with Abigail Adams, where they make lists of their own faults in the kind of Pythagorean spirit, and always recognizing in Adams' case that his main effort is to control his temper. The, the Adams is so ultimately endearing because he makes up with his enemies. He has these terrible fallouts with both Jefferson and Mercy Otis Warren, the great anti-federalist who writes these satires, the revolution and Adam supports as the, the poetical genius of her age. They fall out over politics. She says Adams is self-regarding. He denounces her and, and says, how dare you? But then they make up and he gladly attests to her authorship of, of a play that she's being denied as the author of and, and showing that for him, the friendship is more important than the, the vanity. So he, he, he's, he's a great example of how self-consciously the founders led the purpose-driven life. It, it, it was a constant effort to master their own anxieties and excesses and deficiencies, but they did it very, very mindfully. 
And you say that with John Adams, you have his treatment of women like Mercy or Abigail, and they are absolutely his equals. He doesn't in any way deal with them as if they were inferior to them. And yet, he's also publicly wouldn't have the edu- he wouldn't give his daughters the same education that he would his son, right? Well, this is so he's also aware of his own contradictions here. This is crucial. He he does famously dismiss Abigail's remember the ladies letter and doesn't give his daughters the same education as his sons, as was the norm then. Abigail wasn't given access to a Harvard education, nor was Mercy. But Adams ultimately does treat women as intellectual equals. And and for me, the most inspiring takeaway from this this aspect of the story is that when Abigail reads voraciously, she's inspired and turned on to the classics by one of Adams's friends, and, and Mercy insists on having a classical education alongside her brother, James Otis. And what she takes from reading the classics is the same that Adams does. She becomes a brilliant uh, poet and writer and is both and, and is fully the intellectual equal of, of all the guys that she's interacting with. It, it, it just shows that even when you have to uh, be self-taught, this brilliant wisdom inspires great heights. Talk about Jefferson and his, obviously, his contradictions too with this. There he is, a slave owner, unrepentant slave owner in a way, and yet a dedicated reader of the Stoics. How did he wrestle with his own inconsistencies on on all of this? Well, we've got to talk about slavery, of course. Hi there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you, too, for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.Substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's DishCast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. andrewsullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe.